You know, just open your Bibles, if you will, and let's get into it, all right? Daniel chapter 6. While you're turning there, I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever been persecuted for your faith? Have you ever been uh, persecuted because you stood up for the truth of Jesus Christ? I remember once, uh, when I first started off, my first pastor there in uh, Kansas, I remember I had a bunch of people over at my home for an adult Sunday school kind of party, and we were doing some stuff in the basement. And I heard later that guys down there, I, was, I just started teaching. I'd been there about six months. I just started teaching through James. And I'd hit, you know, about persecution in James and how God uses that, actually uses that to, uh, to glorify his name and also have, a, have an impact on our own sanctification process. And it was interesting because I heard later that there were people going around in my own home and calling me a heretic because I was teaching that because they believed that God would never, ever allow any kind of trouble into your life for anything. Can you imagine that? You see, the, the, the testimony of Scripture from beginning to end is that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, right? I mean, you see that going back to uh, Genesis chapter 4, right? Remember Abel and Cain? Why did, why did uh, Cain murder Abel? He murdered Abel because Abel's worship was convicting and showed his own uh, spiritual deficiency, and it bugged him. Uh, it's a story of the whole Old Testament. Jesus says in Matthew 23 that from Abel to Zechariah, prophets and wise men have been persecuted. In fact, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11 sometime, you'll find that that hall of fame of faith chapter there, it, is, it chronicles many persecuted people from the beginning and even through the early church. It says there that many were tortured. The Greek word there is tumpanizo, which uh, we get our word timpani from, the big kettle drum, dung, 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 you know that thing? And the idea was that they would actually stretch out people like a drum and beat them to death. That's where the word tortured came from there. Others experienced mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonments. They were stoned like Stephen. They were sawn in two like Isaiah, according to just a martyr. They were put to death by the sword, guys like James in the early church. The writer of Hebrews calls them men of whom the world was not worthy. Church history shows persecution throughout time as well. The dark ages were dark ages in large part due to the fact that the truth was suppressed and the church was persecuted. Through the Reformation, guys like Luther and Bunyan and the Anabaptists suffered persecution. Modern history, uh, churches in the former USSR, China, Names like Hitler and Stalin, Mussolini, Idi Amin, all these guys were going after Christians along the way. Places like the African country of Sudan in our own time that since 1983 has seen people murdered, sold into slavery, raped, starved, their homes destroyed because they are Christians and they would not renounce Jesus Christ. You see, the reality is that while the Christian life is an amazing and wonderful thing, there is a bit of bitterness mixed in, isn't there? There's a hardship that comes our way as we are persecuted for the cause of Christ. So we come here to, to a passage now that shows a guy who's a godly guy, who has a history of being a godly guy. And this guy is a man who, who finds himself even approaching his 90s now being persecuted. This is a guy who has lived a long, full life for the cause of his God, who has stood through difficulties that you and I will probably never know. 
But somehow, someway, he perseveres and does it very, very well to the glory of God. So what we're going to look at this morning in Daniel chapter 6 is the character of one who perseveres. Because in your life, in my life, somewhere along the way, we're going to face a little bit of persecution. Oh, it may not be to the level of, of, of Isaiah getting sawn in two or James getting your head cut off or something like that. But you will catch a little persecution along the way. And the question for us is, how do we encounter that persecution in such a way that we give glory to our creator, right, to our God, and, and bring uh, uh, more uh, visibility to his name in the process rather than just focusing merely on our hardships and maybe even having a pity party, right? So if these times are going to come, and they will, if you live clearly for Christ— we need to see how a godly person responds to persecution and, and, and perseveres. And that's what we're going to look at in Daniel's chapter 6. I don't know if you have an outline. I didn't even look at the bulletin. I probably didn't get there in time, did it? Did it? It's there? Man, you guys are efficient. I'll tell you what. The first thing you see on there that, that we're going to see in Daniel's life in the first few verses of chapter 6 is that Daniel was a man of a consistent character, okay? He was a man of integrity. Let's read, start in Genesis, uh, Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom and over them three commissioners of whom Daniel was one. And that these satraps might be accountable to them, them being the three commissioners, and that the king might not suffer loss. So we pick right up into a point in history, okay? And the point of history is this. Here's Daniel, okay, again, he's in his mid to late 80s, he's approaching 90, he, he's had kind of a difficult life along the way. If you remember, even when he was a kid, he was pulled out of his native Israel, right, and brought by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon, okay, uprooted, totally indoctrinated in the system, they had him eat certain foods, they had taught him a different language, they educated him the way that they wanted him to be educated, they sought everything in the world that just to try to change it. I mean, they even changed the guy's name, right? So here, here's Daniel, okay, and he's, he survived Nebuchadnezzar and thrived during that time, quite frankly. He's made it through Belshazzar, a whole different guy. And now we're in the time of Darius, which is a different kingdom. You've got to understand the amazing hand of a sovereign God in this, right? Because not only was he with the Babylonians, and not only did he make it through Belshazzar, he, he's in the Medo-Persian Empire now, and he's being lifted up to be an administrator in that as well. I mean, this guy's having an impact. But he's gone through a lot along the way, and now God has chosen to make him one of the three commissioners here that are over the 120 administrators of the kingdom. I love that, by the way, that he's so old you know, and still going at it, you know. As I get older, I, you, know, you start thinking things like, man, someday I think I want to retire maybe. Maybe I just want to kick back a little bit, you know what I'm saying? And I look at a guy like this and I think, no, wait a minute now. What in the world, what's the purpose of my life here on planet Earth? The purpose of my life is not merely to play, play golf and prove my golf game or have a good time or eat at the best restaurants, do all that kind of stuff. Nothing wrong with any of that, right? But it seems to me that our goal often is I want to retire by 55, 62, whatever. Now I'm starting to notice that unlike most of you in here, I'm starting to get older. Some of you are getting older, right? Your husband, for example. <laughs> right? I'm, my friends are getting older, man. You're driving along with them and one says, man, it's windy. And the other one says, no, it's Thursday, you know. And he says, oh, yeah, let's stop and get a Pepsi. I mean, we can't hear each other. We're stopping every 30 minutes to go to the restroom. Everything is going bad. 
You can't run as fast, walk as fast, do anything as fast as you want to almost. And here you go, and you just find everything slowing down, sagging, and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, you know, maybe someday I just want to sit down and relax. And then you look at a guy like Daniel, who is pushing 90 years old, and he's right in the middle of everything still. He's still serving his Lord. He's still active in whatever role that he can be in to have an impact, not just for, you know, whatever administration he's under, but for the kingdom of God. Think about that for a minute. There's nothing wrong with retiring, but maybe when we retire, that frees us up more to do, be about ministry, right? And have more of an impact, not merely to enjoy a nice golf course view from our home. Now, it's true that as you get older... There are physical limitations in life. But the reality is, you know, that's not even the big deal either, right? I mean, if you're here and you're, you're pushing older and you're, you think I can't minister because I'm getting older, no, just keep going at it. I'm sure Pastor John will give you a bursitis break or something if you need it, right? You don't have to do that. There are still, I mean, I remember a lady who got put in the nursing home, one of my ministers, she's, she's there and she's going, I just don't know how I can minister. This gal had ministered and ministered and ministered. And you know what? She could lay there, even though her body wouldn't move anymore. You know what she could do? Pray. And she had more impact than probably most of the people running around like doing every bit of ministries and moving this there and taking that from here to there and all this kind of stuff. It was absolutely cool and amazing. R.G. Lee was an old Baptist preacher in the South. Uh, on his 81st, first, or 84th birthday in uh, November 11th of 1970, he was asked a question, hey, are you going to keep on preaching, Dr. Lee? And his answer was cool. I'll quote it to you. He says, when there are so many unsaved people around, when there are so many sorrowing hearts that need to be comforted, when there are so many young people who are throwing away their life in Folly's Court and carnal pleasures, Mart." When there are so many evils against which protests must be made, when there are so many old people who are lonely on the Sunset Trail, when there are in 1910, when it happened at 1910 at my ordination, I was married to preaching until death do us part. Why should I not, in the 85th year of my life, keep on preaching? Dr. Lee added some statistics that he got from a guy named Newman Darwin, who showed they took the top 40 people who had an impact in history and found that 80% of them lived active lives past age 58 to 80. 25% of them continued past 70. 22.5% continued past 80, and 6% continued past 90. And when you think about what's been done by people over the age of 80, at 83, Gladstone became the Prime Minister of Great Britain for the fourth time. Uh, Michelangelo painted his Last Judgment, which is probably his single most famous painting at the age of 89. John Wesley, at 88, was still preaching rapidly and with undiminished eloquence, crisscrossing over about four million miles of geography in a day before there were trains and steam and things like that, preaching over 4,000 sermons and writing many volumes. Thomas Edison at 90 was still inventing. Frank Lloyd Wright, the great architect, was active and creative at 90. George Bernard Shaw, the playwright, was still writing plays at 90. Grandma Moses at 80, she has to be old, right? Grandma, they called her Grandma Moses, still painting. J.C. Penney, a great Christian, was still working strenuously at his desk at age 95. And the Apostle John wrote the Revelation, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, at the age roughly of 90. 
And, and we're sitting here going, yeah, I'm just 55 and then I can start relaxing, right? No, no, we forfeit the richness of age because we've gone down the path and God has placed us in an environment where we can have it. By the way, from the young person's perspective, value those senior saints. Seek out those senior saints, right? That's one thing that Lord hopefully will bring into the midst here, right? It's an awesome young church, but it's cool to have some great senior saints too, right? That you can learn from, that you can encourage and minister to. And they're out there as well. So here's Daniel. I mean, he's a guy who's just not stopping. He continues to, to, to work and minister and, and use whatever breath the Lord has given him in his lungs to be productive. Verse 3. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. I love that. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Man, wouldn't you like to be that when you're at that age, right? Just somebody say about you that you have an extraordinary spirit. I mean, who wants to become cantankerous, bitter, obstinate, cross, difficult to deal with, which is so easy to do the older you get? I love the story of the 80-year-old man who got married. He bought a four-bedroom house next to an elementary school. I love his optimism. Isn't that cool? I mean, this guys he's making plans. I'm 80. I just got married. Let's have some kids. Be usable. Be involved. Be ministering. Don't sign out. Verse 4. Then the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to cover, government affairs, but they couldn't find any ground of accusation or any evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. It's an interesting twist in the story here because so far Daniel's life is pretty successful, right? He's being raised up to this great position. They're seeing this extraordinary spirit and now he's going to be the guy over the guys. But the rest of the, the other two commissioners and the 120 satraps begin looking around because of the green-eyed monster of jealousy, uh, the wicked sin of envy began to rear its ugly head. Even at 90, attacks aren't, aren't, aren't really letting up for him, right? Proverbs 27, 4 says, Wrath is fierce, and anger is a flood, but who can stand before jealousy? And that's what's going on with these guys. They're, they're looking at him and saying, what in the world, why is this guy being raised up over everybody else? We need to find some dirt on him. Look at the remarkable testimony. They could find no ground of accusation, no evidence of corruption. He was faithful. There was no negligence or corruption to be found in him. You know, the, the, the day of, in the court of Darius was, was a really rough period of time. It's full of idolatry, ruthlessness, cruelty, all this kind of stuff. But even in the midst of that, here's Daniel. And he's, you know, some people say, well, in my, you know, my area, it's okay to have a little more sin because I'm trying to reach out to the people around me. No. He stands as this pure, bright, fresh flower in the midst of a really dark situation. Look at verse 5. Then these men said, now get this. We shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. They, they look around and they, they do their FBI search. They're checking them all out and everything. And they're saying, this guy's a man of integrity. 
We can't find anything. He's not cooking the books. He's not stealing. He's not skimming. He's not, there's nothing going on here that, is, that, is, that we can find to accuse him at all. The only way we're going to get Daniel is if we make something that is God tells him to do illegal so that we can go after him. I love that. This, this Daniel was a man of integrity. I wonder if we were in Daniel's position and somebody wanted to go after us, us that hard, how clean would we be found, right? How far would they have to look? Would they come to the conclusion the only way they're going to they're gonna come after me or you is because we stand for God and it's only in, in regards to what God has us to do that they can get us on anything? Or might they find other inconsistencies? Daniel had integrity, and, and that's where it all must start, folks. We want impact. There's not a person in this room, I believe, that doesn't want some impact, right? You want to have an impact for the kingdom of God. But it must begin with integrity. If, if we want impact and we're not willing to have integrity in our dealings, our impact is greatly diminished. Daniel had this amazing part of him where he was consistently holy and living a life. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was seeking with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength to live for God. Point number two, another characteristic of one who perseveres, we see in beginning of verse six. And in Daniel, this was an important spiritual quality. He was, a, he was a man of continual consecration, okay? Continual consecration. He was a man who was about a worship and prayer in his life. Look at verse six. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius live forever. That's the way you address the king, right? All the commissioners of this kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king, that's you, Darius, should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. You see what's going on here, right? They've all come together. By the way, it's not a 100% agreement because I'm pretty sure Daniel wasn't brought into this mix, right? But they go to the king and they, they play to him like you do, you know. And it's like flattery, old king, live forever. That's the way you address a king. And they say, you know, it would be really cool because you're such an awesome king and so powerful and wonderful and wow, you're just above everybody else and we're just, ow, we're just in awe of you, you know. Uh, what if nobody could even make, make it ask anything of any man on earth? Better than that, what if they couldn't even pray to God and ask him for anything? And that you, king, because you're so awesome and you're so wonderful and we're just so in awe of you that, that, we sh that, you, that people would have to come to you only for 30 days. You would be, in effect, a god. And if they don't, because it's really important everybody understands how cool you are, O king, they ought to be cast into the lion's den. By the way, this is a great example of biblical inerrancy right here. You remember back in Daniel chapter 3, about 15 months ago, I preached on that uh, to you guys. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into what? What was it? Go ahead. It's okay to talk in here. Fiery furnace, right? Okay, that was in, under Babylonia. Now we're in the Medo-Persian Empire. They're throwing them to the lion's, lion's den. You see, the, the problem with this, the reason they're not doing a fiery furnace anymore is because the Medo-Persian Empire was full of what's called Zoroastrians. And those guys, to them, fire is a holy thing, and so they wouldn't want to defile it with a corpse. So what are they going to do? 
they have to have another way to kill you, another incredibly ugly way to die, and so it's a lion's den for you. So king, for 30 days, don't let anybody pray to God or man or ask him for anything. And if they do, they need to be cast into the lion's den. By the way, if this kind of law was passed in America today that you couldn't pray for 30 days, I mean, do you think it would bother many people anymore? I mean, would it really irritate you? I mean, some go month after month without praying to God. Uh, it might bug some who know they're supposed to be praying. It's kind of like when prayer went out of the schools. Nobody cared about prayer in the schools until guess what? You can't pray in the schools anymore. Now we're all evangelicals are up in arms. We ought to be able to pray in the school. Well, we didn't really care about it apparently when it was going on. See, we, if we care about it now, this kind of thing would drive us nuts. This thing would be a problem for us like it's a problem for Daniel. And, and we ought to be, folks, and you just don't miss us, okay? I know it's not uh, uh, kind of a cool thing. It's not, uh, you know, we don't get warm fuzzies and liver quivers from it from prayer usually, but you just got to think about this for a second, okay? Prayer is an absolutely important part of the Christian walk, okay? Nobody knows when you're doing it, if you're doing it right most of the time, right? It, it, it's a thing where you're going in humble dependence to God, and you're seeking something, saying, you know, I can't control this, Lord. I need you to act. I need you to bold me and shape me into who and what you want me to be. I want you to work in my situation in such a way that brings your name glory. I'm not looking for my own comfort primarily, Lord. Your will be done. They continue in verse 8. Now, O king... Establish the injunction. Sign the document so that it cannot be changed according, and this is a key phrase, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Okay, now this is an important part of this story for you to understand. The law of the Medes and the Persians could not be revoked, just like it says there. There was nothing can change it. The king couldn't go, you know, I'm the king. I'm going to make another law to offset that law. No, 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 no. It's like in the book of Esther. You remember Esther? The, the king, his name there was uh, Ahushuaris, right? And he had a wife whose name was Vashti. Now, Vashti was a stone-cold babe, okay? She was foxy, and he was proud of it. You know what I'm saying? And so he wanted to really just kind of parade her out in front of his buddies at a party one night. And so he sets a decree. She's got to come out and do this. The law of the me, the Persians, all that kind of stuff. Cannot be refused. Cannot be revoked. She says, uh-uh, I ain't going to do it. And she was banned at that point, right? She was punished for it. This is the same thing here. Here you have a situation. If this law goes into effect, no matter what happens, no matter what comes to be, whoever makes that petition to any God or man inside that 30-day period will be cast into the lion's den. Verse 9. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is the injunction. Verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Boy, I come to, a pass, I come to something like this, and I think, well, what would I do? What would, how would, you know, would I? You can't pray for 30 days. How would I handle that if that was the law here? 
Maybe, you know, you could say, well, I'll just pray restaurant style, right? When you're at a restaurant by yourself and you pray every meal, sometimes you just kind of leave your eyes open. Oh, Lord, I thank you so much for this food, you know, that kind of thing. But nobody will know I'm praying, right? Or maybe I'll just go into my bedroom and sit up in my little roof chamber with the windows open toward Jerusalem and nobody can see me and I'm still praying, right? Or maybe, you know, I just won't pray for 30 days. It's just 30 days. That's not forever. And I just outwit what they're trying to do. Well, for Daniel, none of these were an option. You understand this, right? Daniel was a guy with integrity, as we saw earlier, and he was a man who was going to be continual in his consecration, and it wasn't going to let anything change him. He wasn't here to please man. He was like Polycarp. You remember Polycarp, the early church father? I mean, this guy, he was being threatened with, with martyrdom at Smyrna if he didn't deny Christ. And when they were doing this to him, he replied to him, he said, 80 and six years I have served him and he's never caused me any injury. How can I then blaspheme my king and savior? Do what you, do, do what you need to do to me. I'm not going to blaspheme. Or like Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5 when the council brings them and says, you can't preach this name. You can't preach Christ anymore. This is just going too far. Stop it or we're going to do something bad and terrible to you. And in Acts chapter 5, 29, they said, yeah, you just tell me, should I obey God or should I obey man? And they did what they went right back out. And what did they start doing? Teaching and preaching Christ. It was this way with Daniel. Daniel was a, was a hero. Daniel was a guy who was going to do what God had him to do because he loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, Daniel's prayer here, even though there's not words recorded here, it just exhibits his character and the proper attitude of prayer here in this one single verse. You can tell just by reading this verse that his prayer was courageous, right? I mean, he's come, he knew the document was signed, he knew the consequences of that, but he also knew what God had for him to do. And so he did it. He was a, he was a hero, he was courageous. His, his pray, prayer was also pure in motive. He wasn't making a political statement. You know, it's not like, well, I'm gonna go pray in the, you know, in the courthouse to show everybody that I pray. He wasn't trying to draw attention to himself. He just went, just like as it says, as he always did, and prayed. His prayer was also according to God's word. It's interesting to me. Turn back in your Bible to uh, 2 Chronicles 6. 2 Chronicles 6. Now, this is 400 years before the story we're reading about in Daniel chapter 6. 2 Chronicles 6. Solomon's praying here. And it's at the dedication of the temple 400 years earlier. And he's praying in the middle of prayer. He says this in verse 36, 2 Chronicles 6, 36. He says, when they sin against you, Lord, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that you take them away captive to a land far off or near. See, he's setting the pace there now, right? Has this happened to Daniel? You're right. It has, right? This, this is Daniel has been taken away and the rest of Israel into captivity, and that's a punishment of God, which is a whole other sermon, right? He says, verse 37, if they take thought while they're in that land where they are held captive and repent and make supplication, that is pray to you in the land of captivity saying, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly. And if they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in that land of their captivity where they have been taken captive and they pray toward their land, that's Israel, right? Which you have given to the fathers and the city, that's Jerusalem, which you have chosen and the house, that's a temple, which I have built for your name. Then Lord, hear them from heaven, from your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their supplications 
maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. So Daniel, a man of God's word, understands that this captivity has taken place. And the main thing that he needs to be doing, the biggest thing above and beyond administrations and all the other things he's been involved with, is I need to be praying for God the Father to act and bring us back and fulfill his promise. And so Daniel, that prayer is involving faith, right? He knew that the land was promised to the fathers, right? To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that the land and his descendants would be returned to them. And so he prays towards Jerusalem, toward the land. He trusted and believed God. Daniel's prayer involved worship. Again, towards Jerusalem has this whole idea, the city that God has chosen of worship and atonement. Because that's the place where atonement and ritual sacrifices were for the Old Testament saints. And that's where access for God was, only there through blood that was offered there. Now, for us, that's changed, right? You understand that for us, the veil has been torn asunder, and that's not our access point anymore. So we're not praying towards Jerusalem or doing anything like that. You understand this? So Daniel offers this prayer that's according to God's word. Hey, this is the pattern that was put when the temple was dedicated, that when we're in captivity, we need to repent, and we need to pray to God to act mightily. His prayer was also offered in humility. Verse 10 there says he's on his knees. That's a position of humility or submission. His prayer was offered regularly. Three times a day it says there in verse 10, kind of like David in Psalm 55, at morning, noon, and night he prayed. By the way, don't start taking that as a pattern. You know, now I got to pray on my knees or now I got to pray at evening and noon and all that. There's no prescriptive to that here. What the issue is, it's a priority of prayer and it's an attitude of the heart. You understand, okay? And so he made his request. He did it with thanksgiving. And he did it regularly. You see, guys who persevere are marked by a consistency in the way they walk and the way they move through the peaks and valleys of life. Almost some of them are, seem untouched by the circumstances, although you know they're not. So here's Daniel in a very, very precarious position. And he's just, you know, I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to honor God the way I know I'm supposed to honor God. I'm just going to follow him. I'm just going to pray. And I'm just going to seek to be a man of integrity still. And God's in control, and I can trust him. Is that really all that different for us and the things that you and I face? I mean, Psalm 46, 1 and 2 says, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the world give way, right? Though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, we're not going to get all nervous, right? And these, these ones who persevere are not cold and callous and unconcerned about their situation, but rather what they are is they see their situation from a horizontal perspective. They understand the vertical relationship they have to God who is over and sovereign over all these situations, right? And they put their trust in him. So we find ourselves, as each of us has, in situations that are difficult and hard. But we're, we're like in the words of Paul, we're pressed but we're not crushed. You see, we're, we're perplexed, but we don't despair. Lord, why is this happening? We're uh, persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Daniel was a man who had character, and in that character, he had consecration. And then thirdly, he was a man of ceaseless commitment. 
You see that in verses 11 and the following. Then these men came by agreement. The original word there is regesh. It's the idea of assembling like a mob noisily. I mean, these guys are coming for blood. They came together and they found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God, just as he'd always done. Then they approached and they spoke to the king about the king's injunction. They said, went to the king and they said, King, did, did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king answers and he says, yeah, the statement's true. According to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked, yes. Then they answered, verse 13, they spoke before the king. They said, and you can almost hear the, the jealousy in this, this sentence here. Daniel who was one of the exiles from Judah. Now, this was 70 years ago, folks. Come on, give it up. It's been 70 years. He's here, okay? One of these exiles from Judah. He pays no attention to you, and he makes it personal there, right? They make it personal. He pays no attention to you, king. He's belittling you. He's disrespecting you. Or to the injunction which you sign. But he keeps making his petition three times a day. He's continuing on with this. As soon as the king heard this statement, verse 14, he was deeply distressed. See, the king is not an idiot. I mean, he, he knows that he's been duped here, okay? And he set his mind, it says, on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Now, this is a really cool part of the story. I don't want you to miss it, all right? The most powerful man in the land wants to get him out of the situation, the most powerful man in the land exerted effort to do that. But you know what? In the end, he couldn't do it. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't do it. And what I love about this, and I don't want you to miss, is this is a beautiful picture of your God. Because when, when all of man's efforts can fail, when all the resources and strings that you're trying to pull on to help your situation uh, come to no good end, here there stands on a throne a God who is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. He does not like power. He can exert himself in what he wants to happen comes to pass. Can you dig that? I mean, he, has, he loves you. He cares about you. He, he desires for you to bring glory to his name and for you to be bettered in the process. And he stands above all your situations. If you, if you have illness, he stands above that. If you have a, a loss financial in your job, a, a loved one, he stands above all that. And he can work all things together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purposes. It doesn't matter if, if President Obama can't do it for you. It doesn't matter if your mommy and daddy can't do it for you. Let me tell you what, there is a God on his throne who is working in the way that is best. Moms and dads don't always work in the way is best. Amen? I should at least have heard an amen from a mom and a dad on that one. We try to, but even then, we sometimes, you know, coddle our children or build bad habits. And, you know, we're sinful. But God is working in the way that is best. Now, not necessarily the easiest, but the way that's best. And here it is. The king can't even do anything for him. Even with a powerful king on his side, Daniel couldn't be saved from the law of the Medes and the Persians. So whatever was going to happen had to be totally a God thing. And if it's totally a God thing, who gets the glory? God. 
Verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which a king establishes may be changed. In other words, there's nothing you can do, O king. They see him exert. Then the king gives orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. Now, I love this sentence here. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. That's all. There's nothing I can do, Daniel. This God, your servant, he's the one who's going to have to do it. And Daniel was cast into the lion's den. Now, let me paint a picture for you there because there are some of these that have been found. It's basically a, a cave in the side of a hill with an opening, okay? And what you could do, and then you, you, the, the opening had a, a stone that would be put above it. We'll see that here in a little bit, or, or over it. And then people would go up on top, and there was an opening on top where you could look down and watch the show, as it were. And there was usually a wall right in the middle <clears throat> with a door on it that could be lifted from the top and raised. So they put food in the other side. The, the lions would go over there. They could close it. Then they'd come in and clean, you know, do all that kind of stuff. But it was basically a show place for an execution. And when Daniel was cast into it, it means he was probably lowered into it, although he may have come in through the side, which is what happens with the stone. Verse 17, a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, or pit is the word really there. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing might be changed in regard to Daniel. Well, that reminds me of the resurrection, doesn't it? I mean, when the stone was rolled and it was sealed off and all this stuff, so nobody could say, hey, anything happened here, right? And it's exactly the same thing in a way, because here God's going to deliver, and he's going to do something that's absolutely supernatural and crazy and, and cool. So it's sealed up, and the king went off to his palace, and he spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him. And his sleep fled from him. So here's the king. He's tried everything he can. He, he's going without food. He's, he's not watching Blu-rays. I mean, he, he's basically, he's just, he can't sleep. He's just tossing and turning. What's going on with Daniel? I feel so terrible about this. Verse 19, the king rose at, at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. Now, Darius is probably about 62, 65 at this time. So in haste, you know, it's not going to be necessarily super fast. But anyway, he went as fast as he could. And when he came near to the den, to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Now, if I'm Daniel, I'm going to wait there for a little bit. <laughs> then Daniel spoke to the king. Oh, king, live forever. <laughs> I love that, right? My God sent his angel, and he shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O oh, king. I've committed no crime. I love this, right? Here we go. It's just like, it's similar to Daniel chapter 3, where God sends his angel. Now, you remember in Daniel 3, it was the angel of the Lord, which is the second person of the Trinity, right? So Christ in, in, the, in, the, in the fiery furnace. And this doesn't say the angel of the Lord, so we can't be dogmatic about it, but I kind of like to think it is because it's just so cool that the lion of Judah would be the one closing the mouth of the lions. I just love that part of it. But here he is. God's taking care one way or the other. And check it out. He shut the lion's mouth. By the way, he held their claws down and a few other things as well. 
God was able to overrule these lions. I love that, right? See, God can do anything. I know we like to like paint God into this little box that we want him to be a certain way. The only box that's available to paint God is the box of scripture. Anything you want to add or subtract from that, you can forget about it, okay? It just doesn't work. But let me just tell you this. What, what Daniel knew and put his faith in, even though he wasn't sure, I'm sure that this was going to happen to him. So he knew that God was sovereign over creation, right? So, I mean, you can go back to Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, right, was the most beautiful of all creatures. And God, in the curse, turns that most beautiful creature into the hideous thing that even today, anybody sees a snake and everybody gets all squeamish, right? Or you go to Genesis uh, 6 through 9, the flood, right? And, And in Genesis 6, you see God causing the animals to come to the ark two by two. Two of each kind coming to the ark. Think about that for a minute. That's a powerful God. Not only two at a time, but they were, it was male and female. So he had the right two at the time. This is absolutely amazing. God has this kind of ability. At the time of the flood, he could do that. At the time of creation, he could do that. In the day of the kings, right? You remember that God uh, caused a lion to be at the proper place to devour a prophet who had dishonored him in 1 Kings chapter 13. He also called bears to come out at Elijah's word and tear up some kids who had defiled... The, the prophet with their words called him bald by the way which is just remember that <laughs> Daniel saturated with God's word knew he could hold the, that God could hold the lions back if and that's a big if right if he wanted to if that was his plan by the way we have examples past that you know Jesus Christ caused a fish to come to Peter with enough money in its mouth to pay a tipple tax that's pretty cool just kind of like, I don't want one of those fish. I want an aquarium full of them. Just come up, hey, the electricity bills do, ding, you know, that kind of thing. He caused schools of fish to fill the nets twice as Peter looked on. In the millennial kingdom, he'll change their ferocious natures, and lions and lambs will dwell together. <laughs> you think our God's powerful? Yeah, he is. Verse 23. Then the king was very pleased. Daniel survived. And he gave orders for Daniel Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury was found on him. Sound familiar? Just like Daniel 3. I like what Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said. He said, it's a good thing the lions didn't try to eat Daniel. He was 50% grit and 50% backbone. No injury, whatever was found on him. Check this out, key phrase. Because he trusted in his God. That's your fourth point. He's a man of complete confidence in God. He had consistent character, continual consecration, ceaseless commitment, and now complete confidence in God. By the way, and I don't want you to miss this, it does not mean here that always trusting in God is equal to deliverance from whatever problem you face. You understand that, right? Trusting in God does not mean that your problem will go away, that you won't have a death, that you won't have problems. Isaiah believed and trusted God, right? And like I said earlier, he was sawn too. Paul certainly trusted and believed God. At the end of his life, his head was cut off. Peter trusted God. He was crucified according to church tradition upside down. Trusting God is not a means of deliverance. 
They're not like, I push this button and God has to do this. Very different than that. Trusting God, believing in God, is a submission of yourself to his will for your life. And it goes like this. If he wants me to live, guess what? I'm going to live. If he wants me to die, guess what? Better to be with Christ than to be here. I'll die. Do you see that? In our day and age where everybody wants the, the, the quick fix and the easy solutions and all that kind of stuff, and we've, God's this magic genie in a bottle that we rub and we get our three wishes. This is not the picture. The picture of Daniel is that he believed God and he was willing to submit to being lion chow, right? Or live, whatever God had. What are you facing? All right? Are you willing to say, Lord, whatever happens with my marriage, I'll trust you, but I'll honor you in it. Whatever happens with my illness, I'll trust you, and I'll honor you. Verse 24, the king gave orders then, and they brought the men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. Now, this is Persian law, okay? Persian law, unlike the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law says the father cannot uh, pay the penalty for a son, the son for the father, that kind of thing, right? In uh, Deuteronomy 24. But Persian law says it required for that person's sin, it required the punishment of the criminal's family as well. That's why they're all being thrown in. So they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. And check this out. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Now this really kills the liberal argument that you see in some commentaries. It says, you know, the thing was that the lions just weren't hungry. That's why they didn't get eaten. You know, they, they just weren't hungry. They're tired or something. What I see here is when those, the family comes around and get thrown in there, these things are not only hungry, but they're ravenously hungry, Right? I mean, they didn't even, what does it say? Didn't even hit the bottom of the den. Didn't even hit the ground before they're chewing them up. And they're even eating the bones. That's hungry. I was in Grenada one time. In Grenada, they feed you chicken. And you know what they do? They, they beat the thing to death. And, 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 and it's not a pita in Grenada. You understand this, right? And they crush the bones in it. And then so you're getting like some chicken and rice and you start eating it. It's like, it's like grape nuts or something. Yeah. It's like, what's that? That's bones. Ew, you know. Well, you don't say ew. You say, thank you very much for the bones. <laughs> These things were hungry. They just like chop, chop, chop the whole thing up. Then, verse 25, Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every lang language who were living in all the land. And check this out, what, a, what testimony of obedience can result in. He, he writes to him, he says this. He says, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders on heaven and on earth. And who has delivered Daniel from the power of lions. So Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius, the reign, and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. By the way, Darius is a name that is a title for king, and a lot of people believe, good solid guys believe that D Darius is actually just the title, and it's really uh, Cyrus. 
And that last whole verse there, the word and in the Hebrew can be even, okay? So it could be, he enjoyed success in the reign of Darius, even the reign of Cyrus, you know? Even the, so take it for what you want there. So Cyrus is the one who sends the people back to the land, though, which is pretty cool by God's power. He delivers, he rescues, and he performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He's the one who delivered Daniel from the lions. God is in the saving business. I hope you understand that, right? You think back to the ark where he saved his remnant there. Coming back from captivity, he saved a remnant. Moses and the bulrushes, he saved his man for his time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Jews coming back. The millennial kingdom. And the gospel, right? Where God delivers. The biggest deliverance there is, right? I mean, think about what you've been delivered from if you're in Christ. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness. You're no longer a slave to sin. But now you're one of those ones who have inherited the kingdom of God. That's pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. Daniel enjoyed success. James 1, 12 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he receives the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. That's the ultimate success there, isn't it? Where we stand before God and he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Here's the crown of life. And we take the crown and we cast it back down at his feet because he's the one who made it possible anyway, right? The purpose of testing and these persecutions and trials that we go through is to glorify God, but it's also to purify us. And whenever we're purified, we, we are made better. When God puts us in the furnace and he drains off the dross, we come out more and more as pure gold. During the course of his life, the author of the most popular book ever written other than the Bible, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, a guy by the name of John Bunyan, he was imprisoned in his lifetime by Charles II. Bunyan could have got out of prison at any point. All he had to do was basically say, I won't preach publicly the gospel anymore. And immediately he would have been released. He was incarcerated for 12 years, but at any time could have been released. During those 12 years, he had a dependent wife. He had, a, he had little children. One of the daughters was a girl by the name of Mary who was blind. In the dungeon, Bunyan often thought of poor little Mary and his heart would almost explode. Can you imagine as a parent? On one occasion, he was heard to say in this quote, what sorrow thou art likely to have in this, my poor blind one. O Mary, thou may go naked and hungry and beg in the streets, be beaten and starved, but I cannot do anything for you. Bunyan remained in prison. He gave all his concerns, blind Mary included, to the keeping of God. And it was toward the end of his imprisonment that he wrote that glorious passage. Unless I'm willing to pluck out my eyes and let the blind lead me, then God Almighty, being my witness in my defense, if it shall please him to let frail life last that long, the moth shall grow on my eyebrow before I surrender my principles or violate my conscience. That's a man of integrity. You say, well, that's poor parenting. Well, that's a low view of the sovereignty of God. Okay? Simple as that. 
He knew what God had called him to do, and he was unwilling to compromise on that fact. And he went through a heck of a trial, right? But look at how God used it, because in that prison cell, what did he write? He wrote the Pilgrim's Progress, through which many, many, many people have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. How cool is that? You see, we're so uh, puny in our thinking. We have pusillanimous kinds of dreams and thoughts. We don't even sit here. We just think, well, you know, our goal is to, you know, again, I want to shave two strokes off my golf game. And it's like, what's the big deal about that? I know golf's fun. I know it's beautiful. I know all these, whatever your thing is, you know, if you're a chief yodeler, if that's just your thing, I just want to be the best yodeler ever, right? Whatever your thing is, it's too small if it doesn't include the glory of God. It's too small if it's like, hey, this is the only thing I want to do. But, you know, I'm the guy, uh, Piper writes in Don't Waste Your Life about the guy collecting the seashells down in Florida. You remember this? If you've read that book? And he's like, you're going to get up to heaven one day and you're going to go into God and you're going to say, hey, do you like my seashell collection, God? And it just seems puny, right? And tiny and small hearted. You see, God has made us in his image. He has created us for a purpose, folks. He, he has saved us to be his ambassadors and to bring forth the gospel and to have an impact for all of eternity. This is not a little task. This is not some little, uh, it's cool, you know, I'm, I'm third in charge of, you know, paperwork at the DMV. This is not that, okay? And if that's your job, I'm sorry, I just did that, okay? But here's the deal. God has called you to something special and awesome, okay? And he's a great God. And he loves you. I mean, how, how could you not know he loves you if he sent his son to die for you on the cross, right? He has a plan. He is sovereign over that plan. He is powerful enough to accomplish that plan, right? So why do we hang back in our timid little faith and choose to just kind of mark the days on the calendar off until such time that the rapture comes or I die? This does not preclude fun. I hope you understand that. By the way, I'm talking about fun, too. God gave us brains to create games like golf. Go play golf. It's fun. Take an unbeliever with you. Share the gospel when you're on the eighth hole when he's throwing his club or whatever, right? This is our God. He has called us to this great thing. He sustains us through whatever trials and, and persecutions and troubles that we face. Whatever lions we're encountering, folks, whether it be illness, business reversal, slander, domestic friction, uh, anything you can think of here, uh, the Christian businessman who has a reversal or, or a farmer whose crop doesn't make its yield, it doesn't despair, right? He praises God for reminding him that I need to lay up treasures in heaven. A Christian mother whose baby is snatched away by sudden death is not frantic, but she's comforted by her assurance that she will rejoin her child in the father's house. What lions are you facing? Do you believe that God is able to deliver you? Are you willing to surrender to God's will regardless of what happens, knowing and believing that God causes all things to work together for good? to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. A mother and father in New England were moved by God to go to the mission field. When they told their three children 
Two of them were just really excited. Oh, this is going to be great. But the middle child was, it was in his early teens. He said, I won't go. I'm not going to go. This is the best place to live. I don't want to go anywhere else. And runs out of the room crying. He goes into his bedroom. And for an hour, they hear him in there just crying his eyes out. Finally, the mother went up to comfort him. She opened the door to his room, and right as she was opening the door, the boy, who had a little trumpet, he played his trumpet, he, he started to play, I surrender all, with tears rolling down his face. He just like, you know, it's hard, right, when you encounter things that's different. It's hard when there's change in your life and difficulty, but that boy had the right attitude. Yeah, it may hurt, and yeah, we may cry, and, and all those kind of things, but we don't despair, and we come back to the place where we say, God, I know you're a good God. I know you're working this together for good. I surrender everything to you, God. Everything. Nothing I withhold. The only way you can submit to a God like that is to know who that God is. And that's Jesus Christ, God the Father, who love you and who are able to work mightily through, their, through the Holy Spirit. The Trinity working mightily, showing that they, they, he cares. And he has a plan and a purpose and everything. So, where do we go from here? It is a valuable thing for each of us to examine ourselves. I'm not saying it's a fun thing. It's a valuable thing. I have to examine myself regularly, and I often do not like what I find. I see my weaknesses, and I see my sin brighter than the glory of God sometimes. And it's then that I'm reminded that his grace is greater than my sin, and that my work, his work in me is a work in progress, and he's faithful to see it through. Philippians 1, 6. And so as I evaluate those things, you don't just say, well, oops, there that is. And you start to say, you say, Lord, by your grace, mold me and shape me. Refine me, purify me, so that I may be a more effective servant. So I may be a man of integrity and consecration, commitment, character, that doesn't waver, one who perseveres, no matter what happens. And then just have a thrill on that ride of the roller coaster it's going to be. Father, we thank you for this time together, and we thank you for your word. Lord, we come to the mirror of the word, and we often see ourselves splayed open, warts and all, and Lord, we realize our shortcomings. We see a man like Daniel and we think, well, would, would I stand up for that? Would I be willing to be thrown into a lion's den? Would I care more about my prayer life than I do about you know, my actual life? And Father, we want to be men and women who are like Daniel, who live a life wholly devoted to you. So that for whatever years you give us here, 50, 60, 70, 80, whatever, Lord, that they may be used well and have an impact for eternity. 
And Lord, as far as retirement goes, we'll, we may retire and serve you more, but we're not retiring from you. And Lord, we, we'll enter into our rest someday. Father, may we be found faithful this day. In Christ's name.